Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're continuing with a series of parables spoken by our Lord. And this morning we come to what is perhaps the most famous parable of our Savior. If you were to ask people in church, if you were to ask even people outside the church, outside the faith, what is the one parable of Jesus that they perhaps know the most, remember the most, I do believe the majority would say the parable of the prodigal son. This is such an important parable of Jesus when we talk about what it represents in terms of the truths of salvation and the grace of our God. And so pick up with me this morning at Luke chapter 15, begin reading with me at verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called on one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father God, such a beautiful story, a beautiful parable told by our Lord in which we easily see ourselves. We, Lord, all of us have aspects of both of these sons. 
living, Father God, for the things of the world, squandering what we have been given by You and all Your good gifts. Lord, and arrogantly judging another and jealous of the grace which a sinner receives. As we study Your Word this morning, our prayer is simply this. May we behold Christ. May we understand, Lord, as we look upon Christ, the depth of Your mercy and grace poured out to us. The compassion You so readily display toward us. And how we as Your people are called to reflect this same compassion and love. Lead us now in the truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You know, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 15 here, we saw that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling about how Jesus received these sinners and even ate with them. So Jesus responded by telling them three parables. Last week, we covered the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And this morning, again, we come to what is arguably the most well-known parable of Christ, that of the prodigal son. But I hope from the very beginning we would understand this is not just a parable about one prodigal son. This is a parable about two prodigal sons. And depending on how you define the word prodigal, and, and some people define prodigal as acting outside of normal expectations, with that definition of prodigal, we could even say what we see here is a prodigal father who acts outside of normal expectations. As we get started, I do want to remind us of some key things that we identify in this text. First, in our natural state, we are the sheep. We are the coin. As we looked at those two parables last week, we saw that both things are lost. Both things have an utter inability to find themselves. Likewise, as those represented by the sheep and the coin, we need to understand that we are unable and unwilling to affect our own rescue and salvation in any way. If we are to be saved, Christ must seek and save us. Secondly, we do want to understand that, that very truth. Both the shepherd and the woman represent Christ. Christ is the one who seeks us diligently. He is the one who, when He finds us, lifts us up on His shoulders and carries us home triumphantly. Christ is the one who has come to save those who are separated from God. And He saves not only the rank sinner, but also the self-righteous sinner. In fact, that is the very thing that the prodigal, that both of these prodigal sons represent. In this first sermon, we're really going we're gonna to take this parable in two parts. So in this first sermon, we're going to focus on the first of these two prodigal sons. And when I return to this text, we'll, we'll treat the second prodigal of the text. But we're going to look at the first part of this parable this morning in four points. And my first one is this. The first thing we see here is the selfish demand. The selfish demand. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. In Jewish culture, to have two sons was to be a very blessed man. And as we consider these sons, 
it's interesting how very different people they are. These two boys had the same mother and father, the same upbringing and the same faith, the same community and the same opportunities, but what we're going to find is that they are very different from one another. We are not told the reason in this case, but the younger son went to his father and asked for his share of of the estate. Now, to make this request in Jewish society was incredibly insulting. It was an incredibly insulting act of rebellion and selfishness in ancient Jewish society. You see, in that culture, when a man reached his latter years, fathers would often give their sons their inheritance before they died. But what they gave them was the right to own it, not to sell it, because the parents still had to live off the proceeds of the property. After the father died, the sons would have the right to sell their inheritance if they so desired. So for this son to demand his share of the estate in order to sell it was him effectively saying that his father was dead to him. This was also a very costly demand. The firstborn son, by Jewish rule, received twice the inheritance of any other child. And so with just two sons, it meant that this man was handing over one-third of everything the family owned to his younger son. When it says in verse 12 that the father divided his property between them, it's a very interesting word that's used here. The word for property also means life. It is the Greek term bion. It is as if the father was giving his very life to his son. And that is what is doubly shocking in these two opening verses First, it was shockingly awful to think that a good Jewish son would ever make such a horrific demand of his father. But second, it's also incredibly shocking that the father would grant this demand. In in normal Jewish society, the father had the right to cut off a rebellious child. So rather, rather than berating and chastising and disowning the son, which is what a Jewish cultural tradition would have demanded, the father shockingly gave his younger son exactly what he asked for brothers and sisters this is where we want to pause and consider what jesus is setting before us here in this parable again this chapter begins with two types of lost people openly rebellious sinners like tax gatherers drunkards thieves and prostitutes and on the other side religiously self-righteous sinners like scribes and pharisees as we now look at the, at the third parable of this chapter, clearly the older son represents the self-righteous sinners and the younger son represents the openly rebellious sinners. Because this is how openly rebellious sinners live. They live as if God is dead. They take the good gift of life that God gave them and they use it to live apart from Him and in rejection of Him. They take up a life of sin with full knowledge and intention and live as if they will not face judgment for their sins. They take the divine gifts of intellect, logic, reason, and creativity, and they use them to deny God's existence and invent new means of depravity. Indeed, this is what sinful humanity does. It takes all the gifts of being made in the likeness of God and wields them in a way that treats God as if he is dead. At heart, from birth, 
you and I are all the younger son in this parable. You see, apart from Christ, apart from any religious influence, we all likely would be living in open moral rebellion ourselves. You know, we see that even in our culture. We see even now how those in open moral rebellion are the chief leaders and chief influences of our culture. And we see godlessness becoming more and more rampant. As a nation of people, we have traded the truth of God for a lie. And we are worthy of, we are in danger of, divine judgment. We are deeply in need of salvation. Brothers and sisters, thankfully, Christ is that source of salvation. He took on flesh. He was born into humanity to accomplish what we could not. And I want you to think at the very beginning here about the contrast between this, this selfish son who made an incredibly awful and disrespectful demand of his father, the contrast of him with Jesus. You see, Jesus is a son who has loved, is loving, and will always love his father. Rather than being selfishly demanding, Christ is sacrificially loving. Rather than wishing his father dead in order to fulfill his own will, Jesus out of love for his father, died a torturous death to accomplish his father's will. Jesus is the truly righteous son that we are incapable of being. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians, for our sake he, the father, made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus is the son who would lay down his life to honor the Father, to obey the Father. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is the one who saves us from ourself. That takes me to our second point, the tragic outcome. The tragic outcome. Look there at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The phrase there, got together all he had, indicates that he sold his third of the father's estate. In other words, the father put into his hand a full third of everything the family estate was worth, probably in the form of, of some currency, probably in the form of, of a third of the herds and the stock, a third of the land. And what this young man did is he got cash for it whatever way he could. And since he did it in a brief period of time, it says not long after that, it means that this younger son probably settled for less than the land and property was worth. Land and equipment and herds that his family had spent generations accruing was devalued by him within a couple of days. And so his whole family suffered because of his selfishness. Not only had the father suffered a relational loss of his son treating him as if he were dead, the father also suffered a financial loss. And on top of that, he was exposed to the insult of public humiliation. Everyone in the town would see the foolishness of the son's actions and question the father's parenting and his response to his son's selfish demand. Well, after liquidating all his inheritance, the younger son set off for a distant country. This is an implicit way of referring to a place outside of the nation of Israel. 
In other words, this young man traveled into Gentile lands where he could more easily purchase the sins and vices of his choosing. And when he arrived there, he squandered all his wealth in reckless living. The Greek term there for reckless living literally means wild or riotous living. This young man went and used that money from his family to indulge every base and debaucherous desire that he had. He took resources earned and saved by his family over generations, and he used them to party hard. The two major vices of the times were drunkenness and sexual debauchery, and so we are right to assume that he indulged himself to the fullest extent possible. He did not hold back. The text tells us that he literally spent everything. In what was likely a a mere matter of several weeks, He squandered what could have been used to establish a farm or a business that would have supported him and a wife and children for his lifetime. And just, ironically, just as his money ran out, there was a severe famine in the land, which means that resources and jobs became very scarce. And so this young man, having literally spent everything he had, probably having even sold his clothing which would have been worth more since he came from a wealthier family, he was left with nothing. He began to be in great need. And this then leads us to the third shocking thing in this parable. Again, the first shocking thing was that a Jewish son would make such a horrific demand of his father. The second shocking thing is that the father would grant the request. The third shocking thing is that this young Jewish man had degraded himself so badly that he was now working on a Gentile farm feeding pigs. Remember that under the Old Covenant, pigs were an unclean and defiling animal. They were widely known to eat rotten things and dead things. No Jewish person would ever have them on their farm or even touch them, and certainly eating them was absolutely forbidden. This young man had so degraded himself that he was not only tending pigs, he was starving to the point that he longed to eat what the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything. His new Gentile friends treated the pigs better than they treated him. Brothers and sisters, this is the the tragic outcome of human rebellion. Those who give themselves and all they have to the hedonistic pleasures of this world ultimately end up in the gutter. This young man came from a good family and a God-fearing community. He had a loving father and a secure future on his family's farm, but he traded the truth of God for the lies of the world. He squandered all he had to fulfill his own sinful desires, and rather than finding happiness, he came to ruin. This is what James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is why Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer there is nothing. It's nothing. If you could have all your earthly desires fulfilled, if you could have all the money, all the popularity, all the pleasure that you could ever want, 
then what would you have that lasts? And the answer is nothing. You would have nothing of eternal value. John Piper, when he was preaching this text, said the following. He said, you and I were made to be filled with God. And if we run from Him, if we take our little earthly inheritance of time and money and energy and use it to attach ourselves to other things than God, it won't matter whether we are worth $9 billion or buried in a pauper cemetery. Our future will be swine food for all eternity. That's the misery Jesus describes when we run from the Father's house. If there is anyone within the sound of my voice this morning who is running from God, if there are any of you that think the pleasures of the world are great and alluring and that is what you seek, I would warn you even now to follow after those things, to chase those things, to give the precious gifts you have been given, to acquire those things is the path of death. As it says in Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You see, brothers and sisters, sin always promises excitement and satisfaction, but it can only deliver ruin and destruction. And in the moment, our flesh and the world and the devil all want to make us think that it's worth it. That it's worth it. That this will give me fulfillment. This will meet my need. This will satisfy my desire. And it never, ever does. It always leaves us empty, guilty, destroyed. That's why Jesus has come to redeem us from this kind of thinking. He has come to save us from the path of misery and destruction. So many times when the world looks at Jesus and they think of the teachings of Jesus and they think of the commandments of God, they think, oh, God is such a killjoy. God is just trying to stop us from having fun. Jesus just doesn't want us to have the kind of exciting things that this world has to offer. No, that's not it at all. You see, the Lord is the one who made you. In His image. And that same Lord knows that those things that appear so fun, that appear so exciting, that appear so pleasurable, He knows that if you give your life to those things in reckless abandon, they will destroy you. Jesus is not trying to steal your joy. He is not trying to steal your fun. He is trying to save your life. Because that's what a loving Savior does. Even more, Jesus is the one who bore the wrath of God for our sin so that we could know real joy, real satisfaction, so that we could have real godly desires that come from the heart of God Himself. It is in Christ, brothers and sisters, that we know that which will last, and that is the very love and mercy and grace and hope that we are given through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please, again, if you are in the sound of my voice, I would plead with you on the basis of Christ, do not be deceived. What the world holds out to you that is made to look so alluring, so exciting, will only turn to ashes in your mouth, will only turn to poison in your stomach. 
will only result in your ruin. It is those very things that Jesus has come to save us from. That takes me to my third point, where we see the wrong solution. The wrong solution. Look at verse 17 there. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. As the young man was feeding the pigs, longing even to eat their food, he came to himself. The dire state of his life led him to an important realization. And this is what God often does. God often lets sinners reach rock bottom so that they can finally realize what is true. And in reality, this is the first step of true repentance. You see, sin always affects our ability to think rightly. As one commentator said, when you are alienated from God, you are alienated from yourself. Think about that. When you are alienated from God, you are alienated from yourself. Sin keeps us from seeing things as they really are. Sin keeps us from properly assessing who and where we really are. Sin keeps us from remembering where we came from, who we are, why we are here. It keeps us from remembering that every one of us are made by God for His glory and in His likeness. And as His image bearers, when we give ourselves over to sin, it impairs our reason. Sin gives us a sort of spiritual amnesia where we deny God in the moment. It keeps us from seeing the harm that we are causing ourselves and others. It causes us to minimize or dismiss the consequences of our sinful choices. In short, and I've said this to you before, sin makes us stupid. But God often uses despair to bring us to the end of ourselves and to the end of our denials. This young man came to himself and he remembered there were many workers on his family's farm and unlike the place where he was currently working, they had plenty to eat. He had dishonored God, disrespected his father, and squandered his inheritance, and he now admits it. He began to express what he planned to tell his father. Look at verses 18 and 19. He was rehearsing this. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In those words, we see the second step of repentance a humble brokenness, and a deep unworthiness before God. A humble brokenness and a deep sense of unworthiness before God. It is realizing how you have sinned against the Lord and against others. It is knowing that you are guilty of offending the infinite glory of God and that you have no rights before God at all. That is a part of repentance. That then takes us to the third step of biblical repentance, which is returning. Returning. You return to God because you know He is the one you so deeply need, and He is the only source of forgiveness. You return to those that you have sinned against because you know you must seek their forgiveness and make restitution. So you return willing to occupy even the lowest place because you know that even the lowest place is more than you deserve. As the psalmist said in Psalm 84.10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But here then is the danger, brothers and sisters. 
In this third step, we face a dangerous temptation. It is the temptation to think that we must somehow work to pay God back. It is the temptation to relate to God as a hired hand. And that is always the wrong solution. That is the debtor's ethic. You see, sometimes we can think that we have lived such a wretched life, that we have sinned so badly that we are not worthy of sonship, that we are not worthy of grace. And so we think to ourselves in our flesh that we must serve God to earn back His favor. Brothers and sisters, this is a lie of the flesh. The fact of the matter is that Christ has done everything necessary to secure the favor of God for us. This is why we talk so often about the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done. He is the one who has perfectly kept the law of God in the sinner's place with his sinless life. He is the one who willingly became the Lamb of God and went as a sacrifice to the cross of Calvary in the sinner's stead being our substitute sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve unto death. And Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead, the firstfruits of the grave, risen in a glorified body. And His very, His very resurrection assures us that in Him we have the very life He has, the divine life imparted to us. What Jesus has done is absolutely sufficient to check all the boxes, to meet all the requirements, to satisfy the demands of our holy God. And so for us to think that we have to add to that, for us to think that we somehow have to earn or put in our hours or labor somehow to get back the favor of God, brothers and sisters, when we think that way, we are diminishing the very work and person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, having nailed it to the cross. Do you understand that, precious child? Everything you have done wrong, every way you have offended the infinite glory of Almighty God, every word, every deed, every thought that makes you worthy of condemnation, if you have trusted in Christ, it has all been nailed to the cross with Him. He has borne the wrath of God in your stead for every one of those sins. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Do not live in a debtor's ethic. You have been set free from that by a Savior who has given you right standing before God as His gift. That takes me to the fourth and final thing we see here. The lavish welcome. The lavish welcome. Look at verse the second half of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
You know, this is where we see the fourth shocking element of this text. This young man, this sinner who had debauched himself in every way, was making his way back home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father felt compassion. And this means, brothers and sisters, that the father was looking for his son every day. He must have gone to the front of his property. He must have gone up near the road, hoping to look down that road and see his lost son returning. Every day he was wondering, where was his son? Is he still alive? Will he ever return to me? And on this day, This father saw his boy dressed in rags, gaunt, dirty from feeding pigs, but alive, alive and coming up the road to home. And so this father was so filled with compassion, so overwhelmed with emotion that he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And this is what is so shocking. A Jewish parent never ran to their child. The child was to run to the parent as the sign of respect. Even more, this son had shamed his father. He had turned his back on his family. He had squandered a third of the estate. He should have been considered as dead to the family. But the father didn't care. The father didn't care about all that Jewish cultural aspects, those traditions. He ran to his son in compassion, so happy. So happy just to hold and kiss the face of his beloved boy. And and that's the context of the Greek here. Kissed in the Greek is intensive. It means that the father repeatedly and continually kissed the face of his son. You know, Charles Spurgeon preached an entire seven-point sermon just on this phrase, the father kissed the son. He said that the Father's kiss revealed much love, much forgiveness, full restoration, exceeding joy, overflowing comfort, strong assurance of salvation, and intimate communion with His beloved Son. Brothers and sisters, think about that. That is how God on high greets the wretched sinner who would simply return to Him. You know, the son must have also been shocked by his father's welcome. You think about it, probably all the way home, and it was a long journey. He had no horse or anything anymore like probably what he left with. He had had a long walk home, rehearsing his speech over and over again, practicing his confession. And so we see in verse 21 that he attempted to give that whole speech to his father. Look there at verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Praise the Lord, he was was able to confess his sin against God and his Father, as well as his humble sense of unworthiness. All very important as right expressions of repentance. But you notice he wasn't able to give the second half of his speech. The Father would have nothing with him being a servant in the house. The father interrupted him at this point and called immediately to his servants. Look at verse 22. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This lost son was not going to be made a servant. He would be restored to his place at the father's table, to his place in the family. 
You know, when the father tells the servants to bring the best robe and put it on his son, do you know who the best robe in the house belonged to? The father. He had the highest place of honor in the household. The father was calling to have his robe put upon his son because that's what a son would wear. And his son was given again the signet ring. The ring that the father calls for here is the signet ring that has the family crest on it, the family seal, symbolizing that this son was restored fully to his place in the family. And you know, servants in a household were the ones who were always barefoot. The father put new shoes on his son's feet. Not only was the son received with his father's love and lavish provision, there was also to be a celebration. Look at verses 23 and 24. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you know the fatted calf was the most valuable piece of livestock on the property? And the father said, let's kill it and eat and celebrate. The father was calling the entire household and possibly even the entire community to come and celebrate. And so we see in this parable exactly what we saw in the previous two. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus said in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And also look back at verse 10. With the lost coin, Jesus said, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now for a third time in this parable, we're told how God celebrates a lost child coming to saving faith in Christ. There is eternal joy in his presence. His lost son was home from sin, home from alienation, home from unbelief, home from hard-heartedness, back in the arms of a father who loved him with an unmerited favor of his grace. And that's exactly what Jesus means for us to understand. Jesus told this parable to help the crowds then and to help us today understand the compassion of God in saving sinners. In this story, even when the son was lost in rebellion, the father went out to save him from being cut off. As Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary, so also God the Father has come to save us not waiting until we get our lives back together, but running to meet us at the end of our prodigal road. Dear child, you who have been running from God, running from the family that raised you in the faith, running to all the things and indulgences of the world to find meaning, do you here understand the compassion of God? who runs to meet you at the end of your prodigal road. You know, in this parable, we are also meant to see our own privileged position as sons and daughters of the Most High God. The gifts that the Father in this parable gave to His Son are emblems of our own salvation. The Father gave His Son the best robe, His own robe, when He returned home. Likewise, when we are saved, Jesus robes us in His very own divine righteousness so that we are reckoned as justified in God's sight. The father in this parable also gave his son the family signet ring with the family seal. 
Likewise, we who believe in Christ have been sealed in the Holy Spirit. As it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And this Father also gave new shoes to His Son. You know, our feet have similarly As it says in Ephesians 6.15, our feet have similarly been shod with the feet, with the gospel of peace. And in Christ, in Christ we too are invited to the table of God to celebrate. In Christ we are welcome at the marriage supper of the Lamb for all eternity. Brother, sister, as you read this, do you not understand the lavish compassion of the Father upon you you once were just like this prodigal living for self living for the world thinking you had it all figured out and yet the God of heaven and earth sought you out came to you ran to you and welcomed you home in your repentance and faith You, now, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a son, a daughter of the Most High God. Thinking on this parable this week reminded me of the beauty of the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages. You know, we're familiar with the first stanza, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. But listen to these, these next two stanzas and think about how well these fit the prodigal, the first prodigal here. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to Thee for dress. Helpless, I look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Isn't it beautiful that that is exactly what God does for us in and through Jesus Christ? Savior, the greatness of His salvation, brothers and sisters. Rejoice and celebrate in the grace and compassion that is ours every day through Christ. For He is the Lord of all and He is meant to be our all in all. Let us pray. Father God, we come to the end of the first part of this parable and we cannot help but rejoice. We cannot help but see ourselves. We cannot help but see how we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us going our own separate ways. And yet, Lord, while we were yet enemies of the cross, on Christ, You laid the iniquities of us all. Truly, Lord, we rejoice. And I pray even now, Lord, there are prodigals here in the sound of my voice. 
those that are determined to live their own way, to make their own life, to pursue what they think is best. I pray even now You will help them to see how they have set themselves on a path of ruin, hopelessness, destruction. Awaken them to the reality of their lostness and their need for salvation, their need for forgiveness, their need for Your mercy and grace, and give them the very will to return home. Give them the gifts of faith and repentance that they may be reconciled to You through Jesus Christ, Your Son. And Lord, may we have the privilege of celebrating Your work of redemption as it is completed. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.